And at this time, I'm going to call Matthew to come forward. And as Matthew comes up, we're going to spend a few moments as a church family in prayer. The parable that this young man is preaching this morning is a parable that hits hard. It's hard at the sin of selfishness that we're the center of this world. As I was reading it this week, I was thinking about, yeah, go ahead, get set up. I was thinking about what would lead into something like this. In Deuteronomy, you read as the Lord is speaking to Moses and as they're getting ready to enter this promised land, he warns Moses to tell the people, if you forget who put you in this land, if you forget that it was a gift given to you by the master, you will come to think that you did this yourself, that you deserve this, and you will forget the one who gave it to you. You will forget me when your life is good and it's comfortable and there is fruit. You'll forget the master. It didn't take very long and that very thing started to happen. So as Jesus got ready to teach this parable, he had a lot of material to work with. As we pray for Matthew and as we pray for the sermon too, I want to include uh, the Voth family and some of the other families in our church in prayer. If you notice in the bulletin, there's condolences this week to Jake and Tilly and their family, Laura Sabash, the passing of their sister, Sophie Voth, who passed away. This is an aunt to Gerald and Joyce. So we're including them as we pray this morning. And I want to invite you too, that when I start to pray, if there's things that are on your heart or on your mind this morning, to feel free to bring those to the Lord in prayer as well. Matthew, come on up. We're going to pray for you in the reading of God's word. Sound good? Father in heaven, you are holy. You are the one who counts the stars, puts them in place, and names them. You are far larger and grander than I can understand. And yet I want to understand you. But I can't. And the brokenness and sin inside of my life is always battling to make me first. For me to treat myself like I'm the master, like I'm the king. Lord, I confess my sin and my brokenness. I confess my pride. And I ask, Lord that you again would forgive and cover my sin. Lord, as a church family, we come before you and we bring to you the things that are on our hearts, the anxieties and the worries and the pain that we can trust that you will hear our prayers and you will carry these things for us. So we bring these things to you right now. Father, there are families here in our church family who are hurting and who are grieving. We pray for each one of them. We pray for Tilly and her family, for Laura Sabash and her family, for Gerald and Joyce, as they say goodbye to someone that they love, someone in their family. Thank you, Father, that you comfort us, that you comfort the brokenhearted, and stir our hearts, Lord Jesus, and those of us who are close to them to reach out to them and encourage them to sit with them and listen to them, just to be silent, to be what they need. And Holy Spirit, would you do what we can't, a far greater work. And Father, as we read these words and as we teach the words that Jesus spoke, I pray for Matthew, that you'd fill him, Lord Jesus, 
with a fresh pouring of your spirit for boldness and power. And as he reads the words that Jesus spoke out loud, that our heart's Holy Spirit would be stirred to respond. Thank you that we have the privilege of reading these words. And thank you that you reveal truth to us by the power of your spirit. So be with your servant this morning as your servant speaks. We trust, Lord Jesus, that you are in this place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. As Darren said, I'm Matthew Iskis, and I'm working out at West Bank Bible Camp this summer. And I'm in between my third and fourth year at Miller College of the Bible. And we were asked a little bit ago uh, what parable we wanted to speak on. And I picked the, the parable of the tenants found in Matthew chapter 21. And the reason I actually picked this was because I wrote a paper on it in school in my third year. And I kind of enjoyed it. <laughs> but... Um, my paper was written to a professor about uh, theological things and interpretations and connecting Jesus' thoughts to other scriptures. But my purpose this morning, I don't want it to be a theological paper in oral form. Instead, I want to look at the parable this morning and understand its main point and how you and I can learn from it and apply it to our lives as we go out from this place. So as I studied this parable, I realized it's quite a bit different than a lot of the other parables that Jesus says. For example, in a lot of them, Jesus starts with, what can the kingdom of God be compared with? It's like a mustard seed. Or what can the kingdom of God be compared with? It's like a treasure hidden in a field. But this parable isn't really like that. It doesn't start off with uh, the kingdom of God is like or anything like that. Instead, he's like, what can you guys be compared with? You guys are like wicked tenants. That's what I can compare you guys with. So it's a little bit different. Another reason that this sticks out as different is that in general, the parables that Jesus preached were hard to understand. And we see that right after the parable of the sower. Jesus quotes the scriptures and he says, though they have ears, they don't hear or understand. And he did that for a reason for the hardness of their hearts. But here, Jesus was speaking directly to the hard-hearted people, and they got his message quite clearly by the end of it all. So, I will start off by reading in Matthew 21. Uh, we start in verse 33 to 46. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a winepress in it, and built a tower and leased it to tenants, and he went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what, he will, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, 
He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants. He will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So why was Jesus unsatisfied with these people he was speaking to? And one reason that I might suggest is because they missed their purpose. We as a church have a mission statement, and that is our mission as Bridgeway Church is to glorify God and to make him known. I was looking on the internet and I found that the Pepsi-Cola also had a mission statement, and it says this. Our mission is to create more smiles with every sip and every bite by creating joyful moments through our delicious and nourishing products and unique brand experiences. That's a lot of words to say that they want to make yummy stuff and make people happy. <laughs> but I just thought that was kind of funny as I was looking at that. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to talk a lot about Pepsi, but I will talk a little bit more about purpose. And I would say that the Israelites of Jesus' day also had somewhat of a mission statement or a purpose statement. And that can be found in Genesis chapter 12 when God was first speaking to Abraham. This is from the call of Abraham in Genesis 12, uh, starting in verse 2. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So in other words, God is saying to Abraham, I'm going to bless you in order that you can bless others around you. The Israelites and the leaders in Jesus' day would hold that passage in high reverence as they claimed to be Abraham's descendants. But when Jesus confronts them here, he sees that they probably don't realize what it truly means to be a child of Abraham. I want you to keep this in the back of your mind and we'll come back to a little bit later. But then coming back to our, our passage, before we uh, look at it some more and understand its main point, uh, I'm going to look at a few hints that will kind of help us with that. So his audience and the setting in which he was speaking to them this was Israel's leaders, and he's speaking to them in the temple. You can look earlier in chapter 21, verse 23, it says, When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him. And as he was teaching, they said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? So that was the question that Jesus was answering with this parable. Jesus responded to their question with another question concerning John the Baptist and then a few parables. I don't know if maybe you guys have some of those friends where you ask them a very short question and then, well, you get a, a whole lot more than you bargained for, maybe a few parables and 
<laughs> Another question. <laughs> this is uh, during Passion Week. So this would have been Wednesday when Jesus is saying these things. And before that was his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and also when he cleared out the temple and tipped over things and, yeah. So they would have been wondering about that. What makes you think you can ride into Jerusalem with these scriptures being attributed to you and also go into God's house and start throwing stuff around? If it was anybody other than Jesus doing these things, they would have been blasphemy or they would have seen him as a crazy person or things like this. So, yeah, they're asking, what makes you think you can just do that? So another hint that will kind of help us understand this parable is that Jesus uses two Old, two Old Testament passages when he uses this parable. He goes into Isaiah 5 as well as Psalm 118. Um, I'm not going to read both of those, but in general, when a, when a New Testament writer alludes to the Old Testament or gives a quote, it's very helpful to go back and read those passages because it kind of gives keys as to what the New Testament writer is doing, or in this case, what Jesus is doing. And because that's, that's because like, uh, when you write a paper or something and you find a quote in a book and you just find like a little line like that to kind of justify your thoughts, the New Testament writers don't do that when they write the Bible. They take a quote from the Old Testament, understanding the entire theme, and then they'll throw that into what they're doing to help justify, not justify, to help explain their point more. So the two are very connected with what's being said and what's being quoted. So, uh, Isaiah 5, I'll talk about it a little bit, but uh, that's the famous passage where Israel is compared to the vineyard of God, who is supposed to produce good fruit, but instead they produce bad fruit, and because of that, there's going to be judgment. So, uh, Isaiah 5, verse 1, starts with this. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted, uh, and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And then this is down to verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So that was kind of the stuff that Isaiah was dealing with in his day, and Jesus says that it's kind of similar to what he's dealing with. So in, in the days of Isaiah, he was pronouncing judgment, and he says that, Soon the Assyrians are going to come and give you a hard time. And after that, the Babylonians are going to come and give you a hard time. And then they're going to take you into captivity. And it's going to be brutal. And that's kind of similar to how, in Matthew 21, how the, uh, the leaders of Israel condemn themselves. Listen to what they say in verse 41 in response to this parable. He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. 
when Jesus is talking about Isaiah 5, the, as soon as they like, hear the start of the parable, they probably didn't know exactly where Jesus was going yet, but they, okay, this is Isaiah 5, he's going to talk about Israel, he's going to talk about God, and he's going to talk about judgment, and that would have been clear to them, having known their scriptures. So another, or the other verse that uh, Jesus quotes is from Psalm 118. And that's a very different feel from Isaiah 5. Psalm 118 is a song of salvation from the Lord. It talks about how God is our rock and the founder of our salvation. And so I'd just like to read a little bit from that. This is Psalm 118 starting in verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them, and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, the righteous shall enter through it. I'll just stop there for a minute. That reminds me of, I just saw this, uh, reminds me of in the Gospel of John, when Jesus says, I am the door to the sheep, and you have to enter through me. Anyways, this is, I'll keep on going. <laughs> I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So with these things in mind, we can kind of get a better grasp about what Jesus' main point is with this parable. But before I get into that, I'd just like to say something that uh, I don't believe that this parable is. And I've heard it from some sources and read it that here in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus is speaking against organized religion and that organized religion is bad and Jesus came to abolish it. But I don't really believe that that is the case. Because Jesus was speaking to the people who were upholding the laws that God had given in the Torah. At surface level, just at surface level, it looks pretty good. If you go through the Torah and read all the laws, there's a lot of them. And God demanded that they keep it. But they missed the purpose of the law. The law is like a mirror where you look into it and see that sometimes you don't look so good. In the case of the law, we always don't look so good. God set, up, <laughs> God set up all these rules for man to keep, which presents his perfect character, okay? He says, I require that you keep these if you're gonna be my people. And then people realize, okay, I still have evil thoughts, I still murder, I steal, all these things. God, I, I need your help, I need your grace. And that's what the law points to, that yes, we are sinful and we do need God's grace, and ultimately it points to Jesus and his atoning work on the cross, that that is our grace given to us by God. That's the blessing of God that we need. And so that's what I believe this parable is about. Jesus is saying, you missed the point. You missed Jesus, you missed me, he's saying. That's their identity as the children of Abraham, okay? It's not about uh, biological lineage, 
Uh, it's about who we are in Christ. And I'll go to Galatians, uh, chapter 3, and Paul makes that pretty clear when he's speaking to them. He says, uh, Galatians 3:28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And so I remember when I said that we'd come back a little bit to Genesis 12. They are blessed so that they can be a blessing. And Jesus is saying that if you reject him, you're rejecting becoming a descendant of Abraham or being a descendant of Abraham. And that's the, the greatest blessing that we can have from God, right? Jesus said, or God said to Abraham, I will bless you. The greatest blessing that we can have is Christ Jesus. And the greatest blessing that we can give others is also Jesus. So, in Galatians, Paul says that if we are in Abraham, or in Christ, <laughs> we belong to Abraham's offspring, and we are heirs of that promise. But I find that interesting. We're heirs of the promise, he says. But then in our story of the tenants, they say, here's the heir, kill him not believe in him or anything like that. That's how they want to become heirs of this inheritance. They completely miss the point. So let's read our passage again, and I'm going to go through a few more little points that I have. Uh, Matthew 21 and verse 33. Here another parable. There is a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants, and he went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to, he sent his servants to the tenants to get the fruit. This is almost, like I said, exactly how Isaiah 5 opens, and it would have been clear to them where he's going. And one thing, though, that Jesus brings up that isn't in Isaiah 5 is the tenants. And these are the people looking over the vineyard. So a tenant in those days is a little bit different than farming or, or being a farmer or renting land from somebody. So what would happen is you'd have a master or someone who owned a large, large portions of land and then he would hire these tenants to farm that land and then when harvest came, they'd send the fruit back to the master and then they'd keep for themselves an agreed-upon amount of fruit. And so then through that, both the master would gain an income, and the tenants would also gain an income. But basically the point is, if you're a tenant over land, you don't own the land, and you don't actually have authority over it. So when Jesus says that you're only tenants over this vineyard, he's saying, you actually don't have any authority over Israel if God had not given it to you. What makes you think that God can't take that authority back and give it to somebody else? Hmm. <clears throat> I'm going to move on to verse 35 here. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And again he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Jesus here is talking about 
uh, lots of the prophets who came before them who had the task of bringing the people back into humble obedience to God. And a lot of these servants had one thing in common, is that they were disliked by the people. Think of John the Baptist, he's beheaded, uh, Moses, constantly people were grumbling against him. Uh, yeah, not good stuff. But there are some of you guys here who I'm sure have, yeah, there I'm sure are many of you guys who have the same hard task of bringing correction into people's lives. Maybe you don't get the responses that you would like from people who you have to give uh, tough love to or, or hard things to say to them. And I'd just like to remind you of what Jesus says on the Sermon of the Mount about these things. He says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And I wasn't sure if I was going to share the story, but I was listening to the radio the other day on 800, and they have like that inspirational programming in the weekday evenings. And John MacArthur was giving a sermon, and I thought, oh, some of these things really line up with uh, what I'm going to be talking about. And so he gave the example of Noah. Noah was building an ark for 120 years because there's going to be judgment coming soon. And during those 120 years, he was preaching to the people about the coming judgment and to turn to God. But after the ark was built and the rain started coming, there was eight people who went onto the ark. It was Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. And so if you look at that from a worldly perspective, you have 120 years of preaching and no converts. <laughs> that is a failure by our world standards. But Noah was not a failure. He was just obedient. And so I'd like to encourage you all to not be discouraged when you have to correct others. I'm going to keep on moving in verse 37. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. This reminds me of John chapter 1 and verse 11, when it says that Jesus was sent to his own, and his own did not receive him. There's kind of a misconception that goes around that says uh, the people in Jesus' day probably didn't recognize him because he made it hard for them to understand he's the Messiah. And if he had done these things, maybe they would have saw him. Um, he's just kind of a regular guy doing, for the most part, regular kind of things. But see how Jesus describes these people and their actions towards him. They say, wherever it is, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. He's saying, it's not that they didn't recognize the Messiah and they killed him. They're saying they killed him because they recognized him as the Messiah. Verse 40. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said, he will put, them, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give the fruits in their seasons. 
Jesus said to them, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. The fact that they answered Jesus' question honestly gives me the hint that they probably didn't know exactly what Jesus was talking about them until he says, have you never read the scriptures? These things are going to be taken away from you. It's kind of like after David sinned with Bathsheba and the prophet Nathan was sent to them, or sent to him. It's, uh, Nathan presents this story. There is a guy who only had one sheep and there's a guy with a whole bunch of sheep. And the guy with a whole bunch of sheep went and stole that one sheep from the other guy. And David says, well, that guy with a whole bunch of sheep should kill him, you know. Nathan says, you are that man. And David's like, oh no, this is horrible. Well, more than this. That's kind of like what we have here. These people are like, okay, these tenants deserve to die if this was a real story. Jesus is basically saying, you are those tenants. If you... If the leaders of Israel were to be compared to something, you'd be like wicked tenants. Or you'd be like Pepsi that doesn't produce en what was that? enjoyable experiences through unique brand experiences or something like that. That's what you'd be compared to, you know, leaders of Israel. Hmm. This passage also has a lot of theological implications, uh, such as like how the church is composed uh, after the destruction of the temple and things like this. Uh, I'm not going to go into a whole lot of that, but uh, as a hint of where I could go with that, there is no temple that we meet in right now to worship. And if you'd like to do more homework on that, Paul goes in-depth on that in Romans uh, 9 to 11. So that's where I'll leave that. But even so, I think that we can apply these things in very practical ways uh, today. And so I'll give two. First of all, Jesus refers to himself as the cornerstone, kind of like we sang in those two songs earlier. So and in that, he's saying that he is the focus of our faith. The only reason that our organized religion has purpose is because our purpose is Jesus, and he's the only one who gives us fulfillment and satisfaction. So we don't show up here every week and read our Bibles every day and pray and meet with other believers uh, because we might get earthly rewards or because it's the cool thing to do. But instead, we meet here every week because Christ is our focus and he's our salvation. It's like what Psalm 118 said, right? Christ is our salvation, therefore we are going to follow him. It reminds me of Luke chapter 10, in that Jesus sent out these 72, gave them authority to do a whole bunch of things and to preach about the kingdom of God. After they return, they come to Jesus and they say, basically, that was really awesome, even the demons were subject to us, 
and all these things. Like, we were able to do so much. And Jesus responds to them, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. You don't need to rejoice in that the demons were subject to you or anything like this, but rather rejoice in this, that your names are written in heaven. And that's why we meet here, because there's no greater joy in this world that even compares to having our names written in heaven and that Jesus would come and give up his life for people like you and me. So I had a, a professor for a modular course. That's like a, a one-week course. He's a really interesting guy. He is a, a Bible translator. And for a while, he was also in the Korean military. And he was uh, explaining this stuff to me like this. So, hmm, got to think of how I'm going to say this. I didn't think of this before, sorry. So... <laughs> He went into Iraq, I believe it was, Iraq or Iran, to do some work there. And he says, while we are over there, none of my friends were buying houses or land or anything like this. Why do you think that is? And I was thinking, well, they're hoping to go back to Korea, I'm guessing. <laughs> he says, exactly. That's, that battleground that they're in, that's not their home. And I think that's similar to us. And that when we remember that our treasure is in heaven and that's where our names are written, and that's our home and that's what our focus is. A second thing that I think we can take away from this is that there's a cost to rejecting Jesus. These people that Jesus was speaking to rejected him and it came at a very costly price. They had rejected Jesus' or God's messengers over throughout the Old Testament and God loathed that, but then eventually he sends his son and God says, okay, no, that's enough. I'm not gonna have that. And that's no different for you and I. Uh, I'd like to go to the book of Hebrews 10. Yeah. Yes, book of Hebrews chapter 10, uh, starting in verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified uh, and has outraged the spirit of grace? So in that, the author of Hebrews was talking about the law of Moses and how anybody who takes these laws and just kind of tosses them aside and doesn't care about them, that person deserves to be put to death. Like, there's no question about it. Like if you were to go and murder somebody willfully and to uh, lie continuously and all these things, he says it's a no-brainer, you just deserve to die. But one thing that I think we forget to remember is that he says how much worse for someone who does that with Jesus. And I think that there, we, you know, we all know people who we talk about these things that we've been learning in our Bibles and they don't really care about it. And that should make us really sad, I believe. And it should, should worry us that there are people who throw away Jesus and we just kinda, okay, well, they're, they're a little bit hard-hearted. I might pray for them once in a while. <laughs> um, 
It's, it's, it is a sobering thought, I think. But before I, I leave you guys all with this, I'd like to encourage us to evaluate our hearts. Uh, every time that we come into this building, every time we meet with other Christians, uh, go into our Bibles or our prayer times, uh, to evaluate, is it for Jesus and from Jesus that we have these great blessings? Because there are people around us who are literally dying for the things that we have. So I'll say it like it was said in Genesis chapter 12. May the Lord bless you and make you a blessing. May he bless you in that you find complete joy and contentment in the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. May he make you a blessing to our lost and dying world. So with that, I'd like to pray. And after that, the worship team can come up for their song. Dear Father, we thank you for another Sunday where we can come and gather as believers and we can study your word. And Lord, I just pray that um, the things that we've seen in Matthew 21 and in other passages, Lord, I pray that you would make those um, change our hearts. And if there's anything we need to um, rearrange in our lives to make you the focus, Lord, I pray that uh, you'd be ruling in this church and in each of our hearts. And I pray that that would affect how we live out our lives. I pray that you'd bless us as we go out from here today, and I pray that we would uh, be a light to this world. Amen. Thank you, Matthew. I appreciate how uh, God used you this